0: I'm really looking forward to Martin's paper this afternoon. He's always um, very engaging and uh, has a very particular perspective. Um, so not to say that the other speakers don't, but um, Martin's always seems <laughs> particularly um, unique. Anyway, uh, so Martin is Head of Photography and Media Arts at the Australian National University. As well as being an artist and writer. And he is going to talk about the disinfected city in Australia, which of course has very particular um, relevance to Sydney. Um, So without further ado, uh, I'd like to um, invite Martin to the stage. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, Judy. And, um, hey, guys, great show. Thank you for the the show. It's fantastic. Okay, Of course, there is no antipode in Ager. The very idea is ridiculous. Any relationship drawn between a singularly exceptional photographer working in early 20th-century Paris, a city which, as the capital of the 19th century, was central to global shifts in urban culture, and any other photographer working far away in the colonial settler society of Australia the dusty extremity of the European empire, must be attenuated in the extreme. Yet, nonetheless, Ajay is here. And perhaps the mystique that surrounds him can be used as a lens to look afresh at some aspects of Australian photography. But firstly, what what have been the reactions to Ajay? What is the idea of Ajay? The surrealists or Ajay's photographs are suspended between fact and dream, between the prosaic and the poetic, Subsequent interpretations, particularly in the US, emphasise the prosaic, factual pole of this tension. Jay's commercial imperatives were seen to have produced an archive of empirically authentic documents. Benjamin, Walter Benjamin, was attracted to RJ because his photographs thematised the spatially and temporally liminal, both were interested in contested and transformed spaces and in the outmoded, which which has the capacity to erupt into the present at the very moment it is consigned to history, challenging the linear distinctions between past, present and future. Uh, Benjamin said of Ajay in 31, he disinfected the city, the, the sticky atmosphere spread by conventional portrait photography. He cleansed this atmosphere. He cleared it. He sought the forgotten and the, the neglected. Such pictures turn reality against the romantic, exotic, show-offish resonance of the city name. They suck the aura from reality, like water from a sinking ship. R.J. almost always pressed by the great sites and the so-called landmarks. The city in these pictures is swept clean like a house which has not yet found a new tenant. These are the sorts of effects with which Swiss photography established a healthy alienation between environment and man, opening the field for a politically educated site, in the face of which all intimacies fall in favour of the illumination of details." Five years later, Benjamin praised Arge once again for eschewing the 19th century portrait ritual and the romance of the human face. To have pinpointed this new stage constitutes the incomparable significance of Arge. It's been quite justly said of him that he photographed the streets like scenes of a crime. The scene of a crime, too, is deserted, it is photographed for the purpose of establishing evidence. With R.J., photographs become standard evidence for historical occurrences and acquire a hidden political significance. They demand a specific kind of approach. Free-floating contemplation is not appropriate to them. They stir the viewer. He feels challenged by them in a new way. So what I take from all of this is that R.J.'s photographs are dreamlike, but also authentic documents. They create a disinfected city, cleansed of the clawing atmospheres of myth and cleared of the ideologies of romantic humanism. They're made up of details that need to be read with a healthy alienation rather than contemplated within a comfortable aesthetic familiarity. They document liminal temporalities where the smooth flow of history is folded back on itself and liminal spaces where the seamless ideologies of a civic space are unpicked to reveal urban gaps and layerings. During roughly the same period in which RJ was working, there were three dominant modes in the picturing of Australian cities and each, I think, resonates in different ways with Benjamin's comments on Ajay. The three modes are the panoramic, the evidential and the picturesque. Helen already discussed the panoramic um, before. Colonial audiences love panoramas and photographers took every opportunity to take them. As we've heard, Charles Bayliss used Holtermann's North Sydney Tower in 1875, the roof of the Garden Palace Exhibition Buildings in 1879 and the GPO Tower in the 1890s. As vantage points for his panoramas of the growing city. Even some of his terrestrial views were panoramic, working to extend the viewer's eye across long and deep diagonals that led all the way to infinity down long vanishing streets, which are completely delineated by the sun. In the 20th century, the American adventurer Melvin Vannerman also took a panorama of Sydney from a tethered balloon, as well as from the mast of his ship, the one on the bottom. Tucked away on the far right of Adamant's shipmast panorama is the rocks area, which is the first site for the second mode of photography which I want to discuss today, the evidential. In 1900, the Department of Public Works assembled 300 views taken during cleansing operations, quarantine areas, which were taken by uh, John de Gattardi under the supervision of the engineer George McCready, who we see here. They documented the cleansing of the rocks area following the outbreak of the bubonic plague in January 1900, from which 103 people died. The photographs were commissioned as evidence of dereliction to forestall possible litigation from slum landlords. whose properties were to be either demolished or cleansed. The quarantine residents, unable to leave, were employed to cleanse their own streets and to finish with whitewashing their own walls. Whitewashing had no sanitary value, but purely a signifier of cleanliness. Dekatari himself, and that's him on the left-hand side there, often wore white, and often his photographs capture a face-off between cleansing official and the hapless denizen of the quarantined area. Indeed, the scale of the project gives it now, in retrospect, something of the same moral force that Jacob, Jacob Reese's much more famous flesh-lit photograph of New York slums had, another image of Dagoati in his white, uh, a slum photograph, a much more famous Jacob Reese photograph, a uh, plague, uh, plague photograph, uh, another Sydney photograph, and as comparison, a Jacob Reese photograph. The actual identity of the photographer was only established in about 1980 by the sharp-eyed historian Max Kelly, who recognised 80 years after they were first taken that Degatardi had exceeded his initial brief. Kelly said of the photographs and of the photographer, he offers us a way to know this previously unknown world rather more intimately than a literary or statistical account could provide. Here people are as they were. There is no artifice. Some are caught unawares. Some are apprehensive. Others are just as interested in the photographer as he is in them. Most, have only rarely, if ever, had their photographs taken. The same is true for the buildings the terraces, shacks, doss houses, warehouses, and make do shelters. Here's some of them. I chose the more RJ esque ones from the 300 that are available online uh, that have that same kind of expanded RJ esque space to them. In 1977, Max Kelly published some of the archive in the important book, A Certain Sydney, which went into free printings. The book began with the epigraph, most of the people pictured here are dead. Nearly all of the houses have been demolished, and a number of streets no longer exist. The book tries to resurrect an aspect of Sydney's life, which, even in its time, was largely forgotten. 30 years after the statement, this period of the rocks is now permanently remembered as part of the tourist heritage experience. If Max Kelly saw that collection as documents of city life, the cultural critic and artist Helen Grace saw them as documents of city politics. In 1991, uh, she wrote an article where she noted that the buildings themselves became suspects under interrogation. She claimed that many of the photographs are like mugshots, portraits of the front of the buildings... The building's facades initially resist penetration by the official gaze. Quote This is the age of the facade. A building which does not have a noble facade, a building which is hidden away from other buildings, in a side lane, for example, must have something to hide. Therefore, the official desire to see the building beyond the facade, as though unclothed, becomes almost pornographic. For grace, this penetration beyond the facade brings into view an invisible city again, to quote, "'That space which must be brought into existence "'so that the mechanisms of the modern city can begin to operate. "'Public health is the focal point around which revolves "'the impetus for discovery of the invisible city, "'of unspeakable horrors and sanitary evils. "'Once the official has tentatively ventured down the side lane, "'there is no stopping him. "'His curiosity is excited. "'He loses his fears of the inhabitants of these forbidden places.' Is ready to enter the other side, the reversal of the facade. But in Grace's narrative, the pleasures which the European bourgeoisie traditionally took in their own revulsion at the Dickensian squalor of the other is complicated because such familiar and comfortable old world squalor is not even supposed to exist in the modern cities of the new world. The threat posed to the optimism of the new world by the unexpected eruption of the old world puts additional pressure on the photograph to be proof of a social evil. Therefore, in an emerging evidentiary paradigm, the photograph combined with writing so that they could reinforce each other. The photograph adopted an anti-aesthetic, style-free visual rhetoric, while the accompanying text adopted the status of legal eyewitness testimony. The image was able to prove the meaning of the words, and this new authority was put to immediate use by the government. In Grace's analysis, the outbreak of the plague and the commissioning of the photographs was a convenient excuse for the state to not only rid the city of the disease itself, but also of certain sections of the population, in particular the Chinese, and to reclaim land from the people through an ad hoc slum reclamation program. Shortly after her political analysis of the plague photographs, Grace herself made an art series, which is in this collection here, that also used photographs and legal deeds to create a polyvalent archive that documented the politics and psychogeography of land use in inner-city Sydney. In secret archives of the recent past, she counterposed spookily radiant infrared photographs of buildings, which have been the sites of now mostly forgotten political activism, with a suspended parchment palimpsest of the official property deeds and changing ownerships of the same building quote from this gallery's guide to the collection. In the space between image and manuscript lies the unrecorded activities of the site, the ghosts which redevelopment attempts to exercise but can't, writes Grace. If with her politically educated site, Helen Grace was, like Arjay, more focused on the activities of the site rather than the people per se, then the historian Max Kelly, as an historian, was more interested in the people themselves who were caught in the In the emulsion. A few years after the success of his book, A Certain Sydney, he produced another important book, *Faces of the Street, based on another set of albums that were also taken for evidentiary purposes by another photographer, Milton Kent, under the official authorship of the city building surveyor, Robert Broderick. These were the demolition books, compiled by the council to record condemned properties about to be demolished. Kelly's new book concentrated on the photographs taken over a period of just one week in 1916 of the buildings to be demolished for a widening of William Street inspired by Houseman's improvements to Paris. Milton Kent's photographs are not only a one-week snapshot of the south side of the street, uh, that, but they could be extracted from the archive and reassembled to form a kind of terrestrial panorama of the Lost Street facade, a sort of proto-Google street view. By entering this systematic space and by enlarging sections from the evidentiary uh, photographs, Kelly performs a kind of retro street photography within the archive. Writing in Photophile 1983, he argued for photographs as a new kind of historical document, a human document, which objectively recorded things other forms of record couldn't. Importantly, intimate, contingent human things. Kelly noted, in an endeavour... To tune the reader's eye and to motivate his and her mind, I included large details from a number of the original photographs. It is interesting to note that it has been these, di- these details, thus isolated, that readers have remembered best. So, this is uh, a spread from the Kelly book with this zooming into the detail, and then the original print now online from which the slightly cropped version. Was derived. Something of the same sort had been previously done. Kelly's book, talking to the RJ print upstairs, and the original photograph. Something of the same sort had been done previously within Australian photographic historiography. In Keith Burke's, whose memoirs mentioned, nineteen seventy-three book, Gold and Silver, based on the discovery of a cache of Baylis and Merlin goldfield negatives. Most of the reproductions were severely cropped, while Burke also occasionally selected extreme details for enlargement to, in his words, emphasise elements of human or sociological appeal. Again, that's the original, and this is a double-page spread. Of course, uh, this technique has been used in documentary filmmaking since the late 1950s. Ken Burns used it heavily throughout the 1990s, and his name is now irrevocably attached to the technique. But back in 1983, Kelly's book took this technique a few steps further even than Keith Burke had. Like a documentary filmmaker, he used literary texts and newspaper reports to add contextual ambience to the demolition photographs, which he mined for as much evocative detail as possible. For instance, even though no working prostitutes were captured in the demolition photos, there was still a section of the book it, uh, about Prosper Shoots, uh, who worked on William Street. He tr- used reports from the Truth newspaper plus poems by Henry Lawson, Mary Gilmore and Kenneth Slessor and was illustrated not with images of real women but with a tiny detail of shop window dummies which the ever-vigilant Kelly had spotted in one facade um, above the man in the middle of the photograph on the right-hand side. And that's the original scan with the window in the background. So while Max Kelly was concerned with the direct resurrection of the historical past and grace of our political education, other more contemporary artists are concerned with a more acknowledged, fictionalised and politicised evocation of history. But one foundation still sunk deeply into the bedrock of evidential fact found in the archive nonetheless. For instance, Kate Richards and Ross Gibson have quarantined 3,000 photographs off from a much larger collection of, of justice and police museum. They regard this data based on Sydney crime scene photographs from the 1940s, 50s and 60s as a self-contained world which under the title Life After Wartime they have reiterated into various versions by introducing new poetic texts and various algorithmic sequencing techniques. Writing in 1999, Gibson described this as the uncanny relationship between artist and evidentiary archive. To quote... The archive holds knowledge in excess of my own predispositions. This is why I'm attracted to it in the first instance, because it appeared peculiar, had secrets to divulge and promised to take me somewhere past my own limitations. Stepping off from this intuition, I have to trust that the archive has occulted in it a logic, a coherent pattern which can be ghosted up from its disparate details Mm -hmm. so that I can gain a new systematic understanding of the culture that's left behind such spooky detritus. In this, in this respect, I'm looking to be a medium for the archive. I want to seance up the spirit of the evidence. My third mode of photography in urban space is the picturesque. About the same time as Degertardi in Kent, the artistic photographer Harold Casno trod the very same streets of Sydney. In 1910, he wrote an article called In About the City with a Hand and Camera, Although ostensibly a guide for other aspiring pictorialists, it was really a very personal record of his own engagement with the streets, a bit like Bayliss's, which, he said, have all the humour and pathos of life. However, unlike the evidentiary photographs, photographers, Casno did not shoot with the cleansing sun over his shoulder. Rather, he shot into the sun, as well as into the mist, into the haze and into the steam and into the rain. In Casno's words, this cut down insistent detail so that the masses and tones become more picturesque. But it also immediately reinfected the city with an anachronistic yearning for the free floating contemplation of a city built to a UPM blueprint. The article took the reader along Casno's personal itinerary through the various zones of the city, each with its own pungent atmosphere, from the brisk CBD streets to the smoky docks to the bustling markets to the steaming railway and finally the secret alleys of the rocks. The article makes clear that while the streets do contain picturesque subject matter and artistic lighting effects waiting to be discovered by the intrepid pictorialist, they're also resistant to to his gaze. And without the official authority of an engineer or a surveyor to back him up, the mute standoff we have seen in the evidentiary pictures could quickly become an outright hostility that destroyed the pictorialist's personal old-world fantasy. As Casno warned, and to quote Casno... Hand and eye must work together, and to hesitate is sometimes to lose. If you're at once caught in the act of presenting the camera, your work is almost invariably spoilt, as expressions are not pleasant when the subjects are aware that the camera is pointing their way. It's much better to move about calmly, and knowing your camera, study any little group or street scene. Whilst moving past, decide upon the best viewpoint, mentally calculate the exposure and distance, adjust the shutter, stop the focusing scale... Then, returning to the chosen viewpoint, turn and bring the camera up. Locate the image quickly on the finder and expose at once, with perhaps no one but yourself aware of the exposure has been made. A trip down to the rocks area and Argyle cut will convince any worker with pictorial imagination of what is to be had. But photography is difficult in this neighbourhood. To be successful, the worker should have some experience, as any nervousness of manner or lack of tact whilst working here will only end up in being ridiculed. However, go by your means and get broken in. Tact and expert manipulation of one's camera is necessary if you wish to deal successfully with side street work in this locality. Still, the chances are that you may not like to return again. Despite these dangers, Casanova's photography was part of a larger genre of old Sydney and pretty soon a plague of artists like Sydney Ewers Smith and Julian Ashton and Lionel Lindsay were congesting the streets and alleys with their quaint and charming views. In the 1910s and 20s, Casno had turned many of his negatives he exposed into pictorial gems, such as this wee little gum bicromate print of North Sydney, which is positively putrid with old world atmospheres. However, in 1948, the young photographer Laurie Gay, editor of Contemporary Photography, saw some of his prints in Casno's studio. He suggested that Casno make new prints for a special issue of the magazine. In a subsequent article, Casnell relegates the old Sydney of his youth to a past now decisively brushed aside by modernism (coughs) rather than still caught in the bubble of the outmoded and the old-worlded as it had been in 1910. So in 1948, he says, "'The old Sydney is changing. "'The march of time of modern ideas and progress "'is surely brushing aside much of the old, "'the picturesque and romantic character "'of Sydney's highways, byways and old buildings.'" Some still remain hemmed in and shadowed by towering modern structures. Casano goes on to describe how he restored 250, 40-year-old negatives and made new prints on modern, smooth, contrasty bromide papers. Legay now saw the selection documentary, historical and nationalistic terms. Once Casner himself had willingly disinfected them of their pictorialism, they became, for Legay, as R.J.'s images were for others at the same time, exemplars for the documentary movement that Legay was promoting in Australia. Legay said, These prints must assume the same importance as R.J.'s photographs of Paris. As a document of early Sydney, they are undoubtedly the finest prints of the period and would be a valuable acquisition for the Mitchell Library or Australian Historical Societies. This is a, a gun and then this is a 1940s print. Uh, photographically, they are remarkable in their quality. With slow plates, relatively unprotected from halation, the against the light effects have exploited the f- range of film and paper with maximum efficiency, while brome oil and rough textured prints have been dispensed with entirely. It's hoped that this collection may furnish an incentive to, for a more direct and accurate approach to photographing Australia today. These are some negatives um, uh, that Casno uh, shot as well during this, during this period. If, in the tasteful aesthetics of the old Sydney school of the 1910s and 20s, Casno, U.S. Smith, Lindsay and Ashton had reinfected the slums of Sydney with the sticky atmosphere of old world anachronism, it was left to popular culture to disaffect old Sydney again. The popular children's film Kid Stakes made in 1927 by Taylor Dell, contains an astonishing sequence that perfectly, elegantly and poetically captures the spatial politics of Sydney in the 1920s. Based on a comic strip, the film centres on the slum kids of Woolloomooloo, who play cricket and live their lives freely in front of the wharves and ships of Woolloomooloo Bay. Above them lies Potts Point, full of its posh mansions and restrictive mores. Suddenly, out of the rows of grand houses at the bottom of Victoria Street emerges Algie Snoops, an upper-class boy who yearns for the freedoms of the Woolloomooloo kids. Through the bars of his suburban prison, he performs a panoramic sweep of the city across the bay. But this panorama is not a projection into the future, as Bayliss's or Bannerman's had been. Instead, Algie's is saying a potential itinerary, just as the nervous and highly swung Harold Casno, who, a bit like Algie, lived on the North, on the north Shore had his favourite itinerary through the city. Algy see the kids playing and the camera irises in. The Wollumlu steps dwarf him as he descends down them like a latter-day Dante. But the steps are leading him to, towards the salvation of the slums. Uh, I happen to have a few stills here. You can see from the, from the left-hand side, um, Algy emerges from, from uh, Potts Point, looks through these prison bars and there's a lovely um, panorama uh, of um, Sydney with St Mary's Cathedral, then the camera iris is in on these um, slum kids who are playing cricket, and then he makes this kind of voyage uh, down the the uh, Steps, um, and uh, and sort of emerges in in this sort of, uh, new n- new world, and then the kids taunt him and tease him and bully him, but he proves that he can fight as well as they can, so he gets to join the uh, kids. Kids gang, and he's able to lead the kids back up the steps, past the sleeping policeman on guard, towards between the two elevations, the two classes of Sydney, and into the wilds of Potts Point for further uh, adventures. So, in conclusion, um, by applying the lens of R.J., that is, the tension between the prosaic and the poetic, the descriptive and the uncanny, to what I've identified as the free modes of urban photography during the same period panoramic, evidentiary and picturesque, I think I have been able to identify the archive and not the single photograph as the key object of both photography and photographic historiography. Some photographers have reinvented their own archives within their own lifetimes, like Casno, while historians have produced others who were once anonymous functionaries into significance, like Deggitati and Kent. Some historians have gone into the archives as resurrectionists, such as Max Kelly seeking to bring back the lives of the dead, something Arjay never did. While other artists, perhaps a bit closer to Arjay's mystique, have attempted to use the residual power of archives to pick at the seams of the city and expose the spatially and temp- temporally limited nature of so much of Sydney, such as uh, Grace and um, Life After Wartime. Yet all, in this sense alone, they exactly like Arjay, all have been affected with the, the delirium of the archive. Thank you.